She's the best-selling author of one of my favorite books, The End of Competitive Advantage. She's a sought-after speaker and a longtime professor at Columbia Business School. She's widely recognized as a premier expert on leading innovation and growth during times of uncertainty. She has received the number one achievement award for strategy from the prestigious Thinkers 50 and has been consistently named one of the world's top 10 management thinkers in its biannual ranking. Her new book is Seeing Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen, which is very appropriate and the topic of our interview today. She has written three other books, including Discovery Driven Growth, cited by the late Clayton Christensen as creating one of the most important management ideas ever developed. She received her PhD from the Warden School at the University of Pennsylvania and has degrees with honors from Barnard College and the Columbia School of International and Public Affairs. Join me on this episode of the Curvebenders podcast on Seeing Around Corners with Rita McGrath. Hi there, this is David Knorr, host of the Curvebenders podcast. I'm excited to share insights with you at the intersection of the future of work and strategic relationships. Make no mistake about it, there are a number of forces in the next two decades that will dramatically change the way we live, the way we work, the way we play, and the way we serve others. And I believe there are these relationships that will come into our lives that can change both the direction and destination of where we're headed. Those are the individuals I call curvebenders. So in each episode, I want to share with you insights from our research, from our interviews of great guests and their incredible experiences. I want to invite people to share their ideas and examples of not just coaches and mentors, but real curvebenders that have had a profound impact on their lives. Specifically, we're going to talk about pragmatic ideas in the evolution of your skills, your knowledge, and your behaviors. So let's get started. Did you know that we have several outstanding webinars and virtual workshops coming up? From Storytelling in Crisis, Three Stories Every Leader Should Tell Now with David Hutchins, to the Evolution of Association Strategy and Business Model with Elisa Pratt, Agile Alignment with Lynn Wilson, and Five Accelerators of Agile Leadership with Hannah Inam. Miss one? No issues. You'll find links to replays and downloadable presentations on the same page. Check them out at norgroup.com slash webinars. Welcome back to the Curvebenders podcast. My uh, esteemed, th- this is one of those that gets an extra adjective, right? My esteemed guest today is uh, Rita McGrath. She is uh, an absolute uh, uh, role model, someone I've looked up to and admired from a distance for some time, professor of management at Columbia Business School, uh, sought-out speaker, author, advisor to Fortune 1000 companies with a passion and a uh, and a drive to get strategy, innovation, uh, and those critical topics on the forefront of of executive and board members' mind. Rita, welcome to the Curvebenders podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. So, for those who may not know as much about you, can you just talk a little about your journey of where you've been, what you've done, and how you've arrived at this point in time? 
Sure. So um, I've been at Columbia a long time. Before that, I was doing my PhD at the Wharton School, and I got really interested in this topic of how do established organizations learn to do new things. And that resulted in my dissertation, which was about how organizations develop new competencies, uh, really building very much on the work of Edith Penrose and people along those lines. Um, And that really got me into the whole innovation conversation. And, you know, when I started, uh, strategy was all about industry analysis, right? So it was order of entry and the PIMS database and those kinds of things. And in the intervening period, I would say that those of us who were doing innovation at the time, you know, we were just sort of huddled in the corner for warmth. I mean, it was very lonely in those days. Um, But in the intervening years, I think as competitive advantages have become shorter and strategic entry barriers have become you know, weak, um, people are really beginning to see that innovation is as much a part of strategy as anything else they're doing. I have to ask you, uh, did you know someone? Is your timing just that strong with your most recent book? So your latest book is Seeing Around the Corners, so which is uh, so apropos for kind of where we are and this crisis that we're facing uh, talk about seeing around the corners uh, for a few minutes, if you will. And I'll, then I'd love your perspective on what you're seeing, what you're hearing about COVID-19. Absolutely. So uh, the idea for seeing around corners uh, really stemmed from the inspiration of Andy Grove, the former CEO of Intel, who wrote a fantastic book back in the 90s called Only the Paranoid Survive. And that book was really about being in the midst of an inflection point. You know, how do you how do you think? How do you lead? How do you motivate people when you're in the thick of this thing that's changing your world? Um, and but I was interested in sort of a different question, which was what could you pick up? What are the weak signals that you could see before the inflection point was upon you? You know, what were the things you you should or ought to be paying attention to long before? And a couple of other insights on that were, the first insight is that these things typically don't happen overnight. You know, there's a lot of warning, there's a lot of discussion and chat and, you know, weak signals that are out there earlier um, that that can, you know, that, 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 that you can actually pick up on. And the second insight was that the weak signals preceding an inflection point are usually there for a really long time before the inflection point actually happens. It takes a surprising amount of time for these things to become a reality. And so the book is really structured about how do you see an inflection point coming or see that one might be coming? How do you decide what to do about it? And how do you bring the organization with you as they are attempting to grapple with a whole new way of doing things? So all of that sounds like exactly what in middle of what we're all middle of right now. So uh, shed some perspective on the current coronavirus. What what are you in your conversation with executives, in your own reflection of what's happening? What are you hearing? What are you seeing? What's your opinion of of how woefully unprepared we seem to have been for this? Well, I think it's really interesting to reflect on that because we were warned. Um, You know, there were red signals flashing everywhere. Uh, Bill Gates, as everybody knows now, very famously in 2015, gave a TED Talk in which he said, 
it's not a question of whether, it's a question of when, and there will be another global pandemic. Um, you know, it's happened before, it will happen again, and here are the steps we need to be taking. And he basically said we should be thinking about global pandemics the way we think about military preparedness, you know, and, and if you're a military person, you know there are things you have to do. You have to put in place uh, slack resources, um, which which can be mobilized near to where the action is when they're needed. You need to train ahead of the need. You need to, you know, put in place social measures and so forth. Um, and I think just as an indication of how this did not have to be the crisis that we have right now, I would look at Singapore. Uh, Singapore suffered through the SARS epidemic and they uh, put in place really, really stringent measures to prevent the uncontrolled spread of this disease. Now, you know, granted they're a bit of a dictatorship, so <laughs> they don't have all the political things to deal with. But I think the reality is here you've got an example of a society which said, you know, here's an early warning. We're not just going to blow it off or ignore it or hope it happens on somebody else's watch. We're actually going to put in place mechanisms to prepare for it. So I think the first observation that would make is this is exactly the kind of situation that my book talks about, which is, you know, it's a 10x change in something in your environment that causes your assumptions about business to really be called into question. Um, now, I'm not saying I could have predicted this or that social distancing would become, you know, I'm, I'm not saying I should have done that. But but I think you could have, reasonable people could have said, hey, this is something realistically that we should be having as part of our disaster preparedness toolkit. Now, the same way we do with um forest fires or, or other kinds of, of natural disasters, they, you know, we practice, we, we get ready. Uh, and in this case, we just were completely not ready. And then I think the, the overlay of politics on it just led to some really dysfunctional um, responses. So your, your focus, your passion has been on, on innovation and growth strategies in times of uncertainty. Rita, what's the answer? How, how do managers, executives, leaders both navigate the present, navigate the, the current storm, but also begin to think about the post-crisis recovery. Because the conversation I'm having, they, they believe in the other side of this. They don't know when, but the forward-thinking ones are seem to be thinking about a, a very different evolution of their business and their value proposition and their go-to-market strategies on the other side of this. Absolutely. And, you know, history teaches us that these great disruptions are often the seedbeds for fantastic innovations and for major changes and rethinking in the way things are done. Um, so let me start with how do you lead in the midst of it? Because I think that's really kind of critical. And here I'll draw on the work of my good buddy, uh, Tom Kolditz, who used to teach soldiers at the Army War College. He was the head of their leadership department. So here's a guy who knows a thing or two about leading in dangerous or uncertain times. And he makes a couple of points that I think are valuable for your listeners to take into account. Um, the first is, he said, we have this mental image of leaders, you know, charging forth into battle on their horses. He said, actually, if in a really crisis-ridden, uncertain situation, what you want to be doing is bringing down the emotional temperature. You want to be calming people down and saying, look, let's let's not freak out about things that are not yet here. Let's focus on the here and now and let's see what we can uh, understand as best we can and not get ourselves all anxious about things that may or may not happen down the road. So you know, stay focused, stay calm. Second thing is get people focused on something outside their own concerns. So giving people small but productive tasks is I think, something you can do. I mean, even if you can't give people whatever they normally did, there's something they can do that can be useful. You know, they can, they can, you know, if you're in the kind of company, for example, my, my good friend, Nina McLemore, who runs a very 
upscale boutique for basically business women's clothes. So you see what Elizabeth Warren's wearing or what I wear, uh, those kinds of clothes. Well, she has her uh, production facilities in the um, garment district in New York. And she's made what I think is a very gutsy decision, given that, you know, her business is really struggling. But she said, no, you know, we're going to turn our production uh, instead of making clothes we can't really sell right now, we're going to start making personal protective equipment for first, you know, frontline healthcare workers. And I just think, wow, you know, but that's an example, right, of, of it's productive. It's not what you were doing, but it's something you, you can do. And it gets you focused on something outside yourself. So instead of people working for her being anxious about, oh, my God, I could get sick. What could happen? She's got them focused on a very productive, forward-looking task. So that's the second thing that I think people can do. And then I think the third thing that really authentic leaders do is do not pretend to have answers. You know, this is a discovery-driven process you're going to be going through, and so much is unknown. So I think what you can do is say to your people, given what I know, uh, or given the facts that I think I see, or given what we assume to be true, here's what I think the path is forward. And when I discover new things, I will authentically let you know, but I'm not going to pretend I have answers because this is not a situation which calls for answers yet. Um, so I think those are three things that you can really think about, like the here and now, right? So to dampen the emotions down, get people focused on a productive task, uh, be honest about what you know, what you don't know, and the, you know the assumptional basis on which you're making decisions. Now, going forward, when we come out of the other side of this, and, and I am enough of an optimist to think that we will, um, one of the things a shock like this does is it completely upends all those baked-in routines and the, the things that we do just because we've always done them that way, or you know, this is how we've always done it, and and um, you know whatever. Um, and it also has the effect of knocking down the politics, right? So it changes all the coalitions. It, it opens the door to all kinds of new partnerships, new fraternities and whatnot. So a couple of specific places where I think we're going to see people really questioning um, what, what we're doing is certainly one that's that's important to all of us in the sort of speaking, teaching, talking business is we're learning all about these new technologies. And we have this Assumption, I think, that, oh, in-person is always better. Well, not necessarily. I mean, just take something like teaching a course where you've got a wide mix of international students. Well, you know, in my typical MBA class, you would have had, you know, 25% of the class who are loudmouth American bros, right? And they would just dominate the floor. And so people who were a little less confident, perhaps whose English wasn't their first language, perhaps who were in, you know, some other way in a, in a, a minority group, uh, really got kind of shouted down. Well, you know, with new technology, we can get everybody's input. We can get we can get interaction in ways that are never possible to be done in, in a classroom like that. So I'm not saying it's going to say, oh, this is better and classrooms bad. I'm just saying it really gives us lots of new opportunities to do things in a radically a different way. And that would be an example. So to um, sort of, I think the broad thing I'm really thinking about right now, and I'll be doing a lot of writing about this, is what are the assumptions that are now up for grabs? And we can decide how we want to rebuild that assumptional world when we're through this. Can you give us a couple more of those assumptions that you think are up for grabs? Absolutely. So I think one of them has to do with the environment, right? So in a way, if you kind of think about the coronavirus as Mother Nature striking back, you know, I, I kind of have this image of a frumpy old lady saying, look, I gave you 40 years to try to figure this out. You did nothing. <laughs> and I'm fed up with it, you know. So, I mean, you've got dolphins swimming in the canals in Venice. You've got no air pollution in Los Angeles. I mean, if you think about it, voluntarily, a human 
political system would never be able to impose the draconian um, changes in activity that the virus has. And in a way, I think it's going to cause us to, to sort of step back and say, honestly, do we really need a society in which for $149, anybody that wants to can get on an airplane and fly to another part of the world? You know, is that really essential to our health and well-being? And I'm not saying it is or isn't. What I'm saying is those are the questions people will be asking, right? And I mean, for example, I was at a, a very high-end conference with a number of airline executives, and they said, well, you know, the problem is we're making great strides on lessening our environmental footprint for individual flights, but given the way the industry is evolving, there's going to be a lot more demand for flights. So all of our gains on the efficiency side for you know operating an individual flight really don't account for the fact that as this industry grows, its environmental impact becomes more extreme. So I think we're going to see a lot of realignment about uh, the environment. And, you know, I mean, if this thing goes on as long as some people say, the environment's going to be really, the, the physical environment is going to be very, very different by the time we get out the other end. And I think there's going to be a case to be made that for many people, they're going to say, wow, this is really great. You know, the air quality is great. The grass looks greener. The birds are back, you know, whatever it is. Um, and, and I think you could really see an interesting realignment on the environmental agenda. Uh, next, I think education is definitely already before our eyes being remade. Um, you know, parents are now figuring out that every teacher on the planet should make a million dollars a year. Um, <laughs> that um, that creating an you know an engrossing, inspiring curriculum for your kids, even with support from outsiders, is really is really challenging. Uh, another big assumption in education that I think we'll be really thinking about is. You know, what's the value of the content of the class versus the whole gestalt of the networking and the roommates and the coming of age and all that stuff? And we have this mythology, I think, among the faculty that, oh, it's our great content because we worship at the, you know, knees of the of the, the, the anointed and we come back with the wisdom and then we transmit it in our classrooms. And I think it's going to really reveal that a lot of the content we're going to be able to get many, many, many other ways. And so... You know, a real rethinking of the standard, you know, four-year university degree may be happening. Um, and when you think about it, a, major a minority of students actually get to experience that. And many that start fall by the wayside. So there could be some really positive things that um, come out of that. And then lastly, I think we may be in for a rethink of how we build our surrounding environments, um, you know, do, do we build for, for example, for easy isolation or do we build for density? And, and, you know, what are the pros and cons of each of those? And, you know, we'll see, I think, some really rethinking about how we construct human habitat. Uh, I'm fascinated by uh, I'm fascinated by stories you're hearing of uh, uh, of of restaurants going to kitchen only because their value was those incredible meals. Right. And if nobody's coming into the dining area, reconfiguring it, building a drive-through, creating your own delivery mechanism, changing your shifts, and 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 really creating more. Uh, one restaurant here in town is making eat-at-home meals that you know you can prepare yourself, and it's based on their recipes and their. So it's it's just a fascinating pivot of that value proposition when the demand shock dramatically falls off, right? And it's and it becomes a very different different business. Absolutely. Rita, one of the one of my suppositions is I, I don't know about you, but I but I think I learn as much about my own books after they're published, and specifically either things that are reaffirmed in what I researched and wrote, or things that are uh, you know I change my mind on and I pivot on. 
So post seeing around corners or even the end of competitive advantage or discovery driven growth, are there any specific topics that made you rethink your position or pivot your position in some way? Um, yeah, I can give you a trivial example and then more of a macro one. Um, so the trivial one is uh, I've been very public about saying that I thought this meal kit business thing was going to be the second coming of Boston Chicken. And you may remember the Boston Chicken story. Uh, this was the first restaurant chain that developed sort of healthy meals, like home home style meals that you could get you know, quickly pick up. So it was kind of healthy fast food was the original idea. And if you cast your mind back to the 80s, it was a phenomenon. They went IPO. I think they were the hottest stock of the year. The stock flew sky high. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, all the supermarkets kind of looked at each other and went, hang on, you know, healthy, hot food bar, we can do that. And so, you know, within like 18 months of the IPO going high flying, they they, they just crashed down to earth. And my analogy to that was I said, well, you know, the meal kit guys are going to be in a position of facing the supermarkets and, and Amazon has already been doing it, offering meal kits in their stores. Um, and so I was very uh, uh, negative on their future prospects. But, you know, little did I know that along would come a pandemic, which would mean that people having food delivered to their door and maybe having the uh, the, the time and the willingness to um, make, make it at home would actually suddenly be a lot more attractive than having to go to a grocery store. <laughs> so right. I was kind of wrong about that. Um, I would say the biggest thing that I have been questioning um, is, is a lot of the phenomena I write about um, are kind of reporting on reality. So I'll say the end of competitive advantage where the basic theme there is competitive advantages are short. And to run a company right, you really need to be investing in innovation and you really need to be uh, creating the next generation advantage before the last one has eroded. And one of the things that's become more urgent, I think, and, and I think which this crisis will actually increase the, the concern of, for is the way we've sort of constructed the social structures of capitalism. And the fact that I observe the end of competitive advantage should not be taken as an endorsement. And one of the things I'm really becoming very concerned about is, yes, I think that phenomenon exists. However, what it implies is what um, Massachusetts uh, University of Massachusetts professor uh, Bill Lozonic calls going from a retain and reinvest economy to an uh, downsize and extract economy. Um, and what he means by that is this whole social change that we've seen in the balance between various stakeholders from, I would say, in the U.S., certainly the, the sort of 60s, 70s, 80s uh, was when it, the 80s was really when it began to erode, you know, this notion that corporations don't just exist for shareholders and it's not just about the short term. And one of my concerns is, even though I think I called it accurately, I think the causal reason why is we we're creating these very brittle, very hollowed out corporations uh, that eventually get sort of, you know, everything sucked out of them and left for dead. And if you look at any private equity backed retailer, pretty much that's the story all around. So, you know, Payless Shoes and Toys R Us, and, you know, they're basically businesses that were um, being, um, having value extracted rather than being invested in. So uh, another great one is Kraft Heinz, right? That, that, you know, let's just take this fat, dumb and happy company and, and sort of strip it for what it's worth. And, you know, maybe it survives and maybe it doesn't, but we're able to cash out. And the thing I think is, um, and I wouldn't say a rethink, but I think a, a deeper think is if we don't have a society in which the incentives are there for investment in 
real capability building, in people perhaps having a career, a long career with one or two firms, in investing in your people, investing in your assets, um, we are really not going to have a society that's prosperous over the long run. And I think that's a reflection that is becoming more urgent. And I think this current crisis is definitely going to bring those conversations to the head. So instead of the gig economy and multiple and diversified sources of income, you you believe the, the what what our parents did, right? Work at a company for a decade or two and really build that long tail career and growth and both employer and employee centric trust. I think that's a more shared prosperous world. Yes, I do. Um, and, you know, if you go back, even if you look at some companies today, the uh, Corning would come to mind or W.L. Gore or uh, perhaps Unilever in, in Europe. You know, these are companies that really do think ahead and invest for the longer term. I'm, I was talking to someone from Corning the other day and um, he said, look, you know, I could be working on an idea for 10 years because our corporate strategy is we want to be 10 years ahead of what our customers need. And if you go into it with that point of view, you know, this quarter, that quarter, you know, it doesn't really matter. So I, I, I'm, I think what I'm trying to say is if you think about prosperous growth, and again, back to Edith Penrose, back to my dissertation, what it requires is people who really understand the capabilities of their organizations. And what she talked about was what, what happens is these internal entrepreneurs, the entrepreneurially minded middle managers who really, really, really know their companies, and you only build that up over time. You don't get that, you know, start on Monday and you've got it by Friday. So this deep knowledge of what the, what the organization's capable of doing. And she basically posited that what they did was they searched for opportunities to deploy those capabilities in new places. And that was the path of growth. And if you think about it, modern day example, uh, take Amazon, right? I mean, Amazon uh, Web Services is a fascinating, very recent example of this phenomenon where, you know, they built something for themselves and then said, hey, hang on, maybe other people could use this too. And it became a source of phenomenal growth for them. But that was, you know, that was, in their case, it was a bunch of entrepreneurs who really were tinkering around with the technology, but they built it themselves and they extended their reach into new areas. And that was their growth path. So I think somewhere between the sort of IBM blue shirt singing the song in the morning and, you know, kind of just being very, very transactional. I think there's there's a nicer balance that we need to be achieving. So, uh, Rita, Curvebenders is, as we spoke about, it's really that this nexus of future of work and strategic relationships. And specifically, uh, my supposition and the research with this next book is uh, certain relationships come into our lives that dramatically, profoundly change both our direction and destination in how we live, how we work, how we play and we give. In thinking about your own journey, can you think of certain individuals, and you're welcome to use first names or their full names if you want, but who's had a profound impact on who you've become and how you think and kind of where you are today? Can you give us one or two examples? Oh, absolutely. Um, certainly, Ian McMillan, my um, my dissertation sponsor, longtime co-author, I <clears throat> head of the uh, Entrepreneurship Center, where I um, did was sort of based when I was doing my PhD. Huge impact on the way that I think, the way that I address problems, the way that I frame things. Um, you know, very challenging. You know, really pushed me to 
um, lay my ideas out in, in, in clear kind of thinking. Very influential about my dissertation topic. Um, you know, I, I was dithering early on about studying something I called the science of implementation, which later on became very sexy. And, you know, people like uh, Antonio will tell you it's all about project management. <laughs> uh, but Mac was running an entrepreneurship center and he said, I don't think I want to do science of implementation in an entrepreneurship center. He said, why don't you take an element of something that needs to be implemented? And um, coincidentally at that time, this is how it happened. Uh, coincidentally at that time, we got a big research grant from Citibank to study corporate venturing in the bank. It was a case study based um, bit of research, took over three years. And we interviewed anybody in the company who'd had an exposure to their ventures, but both the successful ones and the failures, which was unusual. Most companies bury their failures and never talk about them again. But they gave us free reign. And that really led to this fascination I have with how established organizations learn to do new things. That's fascinating. So for those who want to learn more about you and your work, uh, what's the best way for them to get in touch? What's the best way for them to learn more about your efforts? Oh, well, um, I have a website, which is incredibly creatively named readamagrath.com. Um, and on the website, you'll have, be able to sign up for my newsletter. So I, I think you know this, David. Every month I do a newsletter. And what I try to do is take a different sector in the economy and use the tools and frameworks from my, my work to think about how would I, if I was part of that sector, what would I be thinking about? What are some of the trends that we could see and how might we think about scenarios for the future? Um, the current one is actually on this crisis. It's thoughts in the middle of this um, issue. And uh, yeah, I'm easy to find. My email address is on the Columbia website. It's rdm20 at columbia.edu. So if you want to reach out, that's absolutely fine. Um, I'm on Twitter at McGrath, and I'm on LinkedIn. Um, so I'm pretty, pretty straightforward to find. That's fantastic. Rita, you've been uh, delightful. Thank you for your insights. Thank you for your time. And it's great to have you on the Curve Vendors podcast. Uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. If you've listened to the Curve Vendors podcast for a few episodes, you know that I'm writing the Curve Vendors book. This will be book number 11 for me with tools, ideas, insights, case studies, phenomenal interviews. In essence, what you need to create a personal and professional growth roadmap in your future of work. I'm excited to begin sharing key sections with the first 500 participants. So go to norgroup, N-O-U-R group.com. The very bottom of the page, there's a get in touch section and simply enter Curve Benders Insights. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Curve Benders podcast on seeing around corners with Rita McGrath. I really enjoyed her insights on the assumptions we've been making in our environment, education, and building our surroundings. I hope you too see the CO-19 as an impetus to reimagine, reinvent, and reinvigorate your business model. Go-to-market strategy pivots, how to reskill and upskill or redeploy your talent toward a new horizon. Join me on the next episode of the Curvebenders podcast as I interview my friend, Dory Clark, on the entrepreneurial you. Lastly, don't forget, I turned the show notes from these podcasts into more in-depth articles, so check them out on our website, norgroup.com slash blog.
I'm so thankful for our listeners on the Curve Benders podcast. I want to keep producing great content, most beneficial to your personal and professional growth in this idea of future of work. So I'd love to hear your feedback. Don't forget to follow us on the various social media channels. I'm on Twitter, I'm on Instagram, I'm on LinkedIn, and I'm using the hashtag CurveBendersPodcast. So make sure you follow that for all of our latest updates. Thank you.